Welcome to Pablo Held Investigates. In today's episode, I talk to the legendary bassist and composer Dave Holland. As I tell Dave in the beginning of our conversation, on so many of my all-time favorite recordings, it's him playing the bass. He's one of my biggest heroes in music, and I can't really put into words how excited I was to talk to him. In this conversation, we cover a lot of things, ranging from Dave's current activities, putting together repertoires, relaxation, his relationship with Jack Dijonet, his tenure with Joe Henderson, harmonic experiments with Herbie Hancock, ear training, leading a band, composing, Miles Davis' record Fide Kilimanjaro, our memories of John Taylor, and much more. Hope you enjoy. I feel like I've been preparing my my whole life for this because I've been I grew up listening to you, you know, with, with mm. Miles and, and Herbie and all these guys. My parents are big jazz fans, so I I know yeah. this music since I am on on this planet. Well, I'm so, glad you've been enjoying it. Thank oh, you. Man. I've I've seen you so many times live and I have tons mm. of, of bootlegs and recordings and you, you can see it behind me. You're there mm. quite a lot and it's okay. it I, I guess it will be coming up more and more in this talk like you're on my most favorite recordings that's you on bass <laughs> well okay well thank you i'm I'm curious what you're working on at the moment what you're interested in and what you're studying or checking out there's a trio right now with zakir hussein and chris potter of course uh, maestro hussein is um just an extraordinary musician and I've been learning so much so that's one of the things I'm working on mm. is is trying to increase my understanding of the Indian music language you know I kind of was introduced to it in the 60s of course when Indian music started being listened to uh, in the West more but I didn't go too deep into it you know my good friend John McLaughlin uh, mm. you know went all the way in and uh, of course. You know, produced some wonderful music from that Can you tell me a little bit about the, you know, recent findings when you're diving into this music once again? The big area of the music and what Zakir does is the rhythmic conception. So playing with him, you know, is a really learning experience to see how he uses the rhythmic language and integrates it into his improvisations. And so there's been a lot of discussions ideas that they explore uh, utilizing uh, repeated cycles and so on uh, within longer cycles. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the ragas, and the ragas are very unusual compared to the kind of scales that we use in traditional jazz music. There's a lot of very interesting, you know, sort of half-step, half-step kind of things, you know, where there's a flat five, a natural five, and a sharp five in the same scale. Yeah. Things like that, or a minus, minus seventh or a major seventh, you know. Yeah. Those kind of things have opened up possibilities. And then, you know, thinking about how to put music together that spans all those ideas, the jazz and contemporary music ideas that, that Chris and I like to work on, and Zakir as well, of course, because mm -hmm. he's worked with Charles Lloyd and many, many great musicians. And the other project, which is, I just was rehearsing yesterday uh, with John Schofield. We're doing a, a duo together. Oh, man. Wow. And so we've, we, this was our second rehearsal. He was here at the house, and we uh, spent all day 
working on a whole bunch of different songs and music, and we're going to pare it down to uh, a collection which are going to make sense where there's enough variety and different approaches that makes it interesting mm. for both us and the audience. How does it go about when you guys rehearse? Uh, how do you decide on the repertoire and what's the process? Obviously, you think about the setting. When I suggest songs, I'm thinking about John's playing and what he does and how he sounds. And, you know, this is my general approach to bringing in music to any project, really, mm. is to think about the people involved and what their musical language involves and then try to present something which will create a context where that can be applied, you know. Mm but also maybe stretches in a few other areas too. So the first rehearsal, I brought in you know, six or seven things. John brought in a few. And then yesterday we brought in some others, and I had a couple of Kenny Wheeler tunes this time that wow. I wanted to try with John. Which ones? Uh, Old Ballad, mm -hmm. which is a, one of my favorite of Kenny's songs. It's the most beautiful ballad. It's got a lot of chords to it, but it works very well because of the juxtaposition of the melody to the bass note. Mm. They harmonize, you know, the, 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 there's very often thirds or fifths, so the piece stands up very well. But of course, John is playing chords throughout as well to support the melody. So we enjoyed playing that yesterday. And then there's a tune called Old Time, which is kind yeah. of a funky, uh, uh, kind of a groove tune that Kenny wrote that I thought might work. Uh, mm -hmm. based on how John and I could play together. And then some of my originals and then some of John's originals. And then I did an arrangement of Yesterday's, the classic Yesterday's, the jazz standard, mm. but in seven, mm. in a funky groove. John brought in a Sting's tune. Which one? Uh, Fields of Gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Great. which is a beautiful song. And I, I brought in a country kind of waltz. It's, it's a little That'll bit work. of a kind of one of those lilting waltzes, you know, so we're still putting it together and we got more, way more than we need now. So for the next rehearsal, we're going to look at everything mm. and then make our suggestions as to what will fit together for two or three sets of music and then some in reserve so that we can switch around songs just so it keeps us interesting for yeah. us, you know. I don't like to play the same set every night. If we do two nights Me in neither. a club, yeah, if we do two sets in a club in a night, I like to play two different sets, you know, mm. rather than have one set that you just keep repeating. How is it for recordings? If you're putting together an album, when you record, do you record too, too much material? In the case of this recent Cross Currents album, there was more material, of course, that we'd performed, mm. but there was a collection of pieces that we felt fit together as a, as a narrative. I know a lot of people don't buy albums anymore, they buy uh, tracks and so on, but I still look at the album as uh, a journey, you know, yeah. through different landscapes, and that's, that's what we sort of thought about as far as choosing the material. Going back to the, to the duo with Sko, you have done so many great things together, also with Herbie, the new standard band. And... Yeah, one album I particularly uh, love is the, um, the one with Joe Henderson. Oh, yeah. It's on there so far. Oh, I yeah. mean, that was really a, a really nice day to be involved with. And I was pleased with the overall result of it. Yeah. I mean, as far as your own playing, you're always, you're never 100% satisfied, yeah. of course, because you're always thinking about how to improve things and so on. But what we got on that record was very representative of what we could do. And that's, mm. that's what you look for, you know. Did this group also play live? We did a couple of gigs, yeah. Before? We did a, no, we did a gig. Uh, actually, uh, John couldn't make one of the gigs. We did a week at the Blue Note in New mm. York, and uh, 
Mike Stern sat, uh, came oh. in and played for yeah. the gig. Yeah, I did. Uh, I was mostly playing trio with Joe during that period yeah. with Al Foster. So we did quite a bit of gigging with the trio. Yeah, we never mm. recorded it. Uh, there's some videos up on of course, YouTube yeah. and stuff. You know. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. How that tenure was for you to to work with Joe because I think you also worked with Joe before you came to America, right? As, uh, yeah, Johnny's. very, oh, just briefly. I think I did two nights with him mm -hmm. because I got the call from Mars's manager at uh, the second night I was working with Joe. And wow. uh, he, I got back to my apartment in London about three in the morning, two in the morning, and my phone rang and it was uh, Mars's manager asking if I could be in New York that Friday. This was a Tuesday or a Wednesday yeah. night. So I had like about 48 hours to... Yeah, get my bag and get a get a visa and get to New York. How did Joe deal with that? Did you quit quit on him then, or? Well, he wasn't question of quitting on him. He was he was playing a three week or four week gig at oh, Ronnie yeah. Scott's, which is what was often the case. Uh, musicians would come in as a residency, and in the case of somebody like Joe, they'd often just travel on their own and use an English rhythm section. So I was often in either the support band that Ron is playing opposite the main featured act, like, say, Max Roach's band or whatever, mm. uh, or I would be accompanying or one of the visiting American artists, usually. Uh, so Joe or, uh, you know, play with Coleman Hawkins and yeah. Ben Webster and some wow. different, different... Those are two that really stick out, of course. Yeah. yeah. Who was in the band with Joe or with Ben? And, and uh, uh, What I remember is... Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember who was in the band with Joe. I mean, it could have been Tony Oxley. It could have been John Marshall. The pianist could have been Gordon Beck or John Taylor or Pat Smythe. Those were mm. three of the pianists that I played with in London quite a lot at Ronnie's. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, working with Joe Henderson, can you tell me a little bit about the things that you've learned from him? You know, when you play with a great artist and somebody's had the kind of experience that Joe had, especially when I was, you know, I was 21 when I played with him first, you know, you just listen and watch. And I'd already listened a lot to the records that he'd been making, of course, you know, the Blue Note records and stuff, and played some of those tunes with my friends in London. And they were quite unusual songs for that time period. They had some twists and turns that were unusual. And so I learned something from that. But the other thing is just to see how, you know, how he conducts himself on stage and, and how he builds a solo. I mean, just all the things, little nuances, too, you know, I mean maybe how relaxed they might be or, you know, the kind of vibe that they bring to the, mm. to the whole thing. You know, these are all things that you learn from more mature musicians because it's not just the notes you play, you know, it's it's how you approach it mm. mentally and sometimes physically even, you know, mm. the music. You just mentioned being relaxed and that's something that whenever I see or hear you play, there's a sense of relaxation. Yeah, something that comes out of a relaxation, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder where this comes from, if this, if this is something that you have been working on on purpose or that it's just your natural uh, way of being. Well, I, I think when I was younger, I mean, I went through all the changes you go through of being nervous when you play. And I remember the first time I had to take a real bass solo in, on a gig, you know, and uh, my heart was, you know, I went around the band um, 
you know, in the usual way, right? The horns and the piano, and of course, then it's the bass next, you know. And I remember my heart going, you know, mm -hmm. racing like, oh God, I got to play my solo next, you know. So you, you know, you just learn that all that stuff just gets in your way, mm. and that you have to just open yourself up and be relaxed, you know. And that's something you. As with many things with music, these are things you can develop in your life as well. So it's an approach to just generally an approach to living, you know, which I think I think so many things that I've learned as a result of what I felt I needed to learn for the music were all things also that benefited me in a personal way. You know, concentration, being there being on the, in the moment as much as possible. You know, those are all things that can be applied to every moment of your life, you know. And then you learn as you get older, you know, that you have to stop having expectations when you play. That if you approach a gig and you, let's say you've had a great night the night before, now I'm sure you've experienced this, I know I have, the next night you come back and it's one of the worst nights. Absolutely, Because yeah. you've had such a, you know, you're trying to recreate that, same thing you just did yesterday well of course you can't you're not living in the moment then you know so so you have to just approach each performance in an, in a fresh way and mm. and, a, and take what's there at that moment you know and the f thing i try to do is just before i go on stage i just try to relax and maybe chat have a little fun with the musicians you know just you know, I don't know maybe there might be a joke or Mm. We just, you know, kind of stay loose, you know, and then get up on stage and, and not take it over seriously. You know, I used to take the music really seriously, but take myself too seriously as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, of course, it's serious and you do take it seriously, but you can overdo that, you know, and it can become then a stressful thing. So it's about reducing the stress of the, of the experience. And right when you have such a relaxed way of being together, right before you go on stage, then the concert can be a continuation of that, you know, just with me. That's absolutely correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely that's, right. That's how it seems when I see you guys, you know. Yeah, You're yeah. focused, but you have, you're having fun. You know, sometimes we're, in the, you know, we're on the side of the stage waiting to come on, and we'll be chatting, and then, you know, something will happen, we'll be la laughing about something, and, you know, we're walking on still yeah. kind of having that vibe you know and, yeah uh, you know so these are the moments i remember as a as a teenager or as a kid seeing you guys live like yeah, yeah. i want to know what what you were talking about <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. could have been anything you know course, it could have been yeah. anything at all you know something that happened that day or a memory of the gig uh the playing there with somebody else I, it could be anything yeah But, you know, as you go through your life, you start to see that the separation between... There isn't a separation mm. between music and life, you know. The two are completely connected, and you try to bring your life's experience to the music and mm. have that be the story that you can draw on to tell to the audience musically, you know. So all the experiences you have, the, the joy, the pain, the all the positive and negative experiences in your life, they're all part of what you can use to learn about life and to learn about yourself. And so in the early days, you're, you're just trying to play the right notes and keep the tempo work good, you know. And then once that starts to be something you don't have to think about so much, then, you know, then you can start to draw on the, your feelings, really. Mm. 
And when you start a solo or you start playing, you just let those feelings come through. Hopefully, anyway. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I don't want to make it sound like I'm the perfect thing. <laughs> Believe me, I have so much to work on still, mm. you know. But, but uh, I'm just trying to explain some of the process that I've been through. Yeah. And, uh, you know. How did you deal with moments where you felt like, I can't play, or felt like... Uh, Yes, you were second-guessing musical choices. You practiced, practiced. Yeah. yeah. Played more, practiced more, mm. got together with people, asked questions. Mm -hmm. If there was something I didn't understand in the music, I would find somebody to talk to about it and mm. have them explain it to me, you know. Or, I mean, I still do that. I mean, I just yeah. told you about the, the thing with Zakia, you know. Yeah. Hey, what was that you did there with You, you broke the triplets down in groups of five and then, and then you know, like that. And that's how you keep learning. But the, the times when you feel like you've hit a wall, you know, there's certain periods where you feel you've had this progression happening in your music. And then it kind of levels off for a while. And that's a tough period. And I remember asking a musician once about this. And they said, look, you know, all that's happened is you've climbed one ladder And you just haven't found the bottom of the next one yet. And that really resonated with me, you know. And I thought, yeah, you just got to keep looking. Yeah. And that's how you keep growing. And that's how you keep changing, you know, is, is having that curiosity and investigation and things that grab your attention, you look at and pursue and, you know, and just keep going like that. And I think if that happens, of course, your learning curve changes as you get older, but that way the process does continue for the throughout your life then it's not something that's just in the early period or a certain time i feel like as i said just now there's so many areas that i feel i can improve on in my playing and make it more relevant you know going towards one of your main collaborators and my favorite drummer jack dijonette i'm wondering yeah, yeah. between you and jack what has happened in terms of you know asking each other questions what have you been working on together when we first played it was at a jam session in london and i was playing with another drummer and i had my eyes closed at the time and uh and then i i heard something changing on the drums and i opened my eyes and jack was sitting down at the drums in the middle of the song he'd just come in and, and asked to sit in and of course the drummer said of course you know and from the beginning the first time we played it felt really good Uh, just it just felt absolutely like it does, you know. There was no like finding each other. But one of the interesting things was that not too long after that, I think probably when I came to New York, because when I got to New York, I was I stayed with Jack and his wife in their little apartment in New York when they were or where they were living at the time, just for a, a short while while I was getting situated. And uh, it turned out Jack and I had practiced with some of the same records, you know, like oh. certain records, certain grooves on records that had. That I, I want to know. Out. I want to know this, Dave. Yeah, well, like it? the uh, you know the Alvin Jones with John Coltrane and Jimmy Garrison and uh, McCoy Tyner, the records like Crescent, hmm. where those just incredible, you know, medium tempos that just kind of. This lay so beautifully, you know, I mean, we both were like, well, I want to know how to do that. You know? Yeah. And then we both practiced with uh, some Tony Williams with Miles records, you know. Mm. 
And so I think those were reference points. Though I, I was not alone with that. I mean, course, there's another yeah. drummer that I played with in London. We used to play just the two of us together, Tony Oxley. Uh, he had his drum set up in a garage at the back of his apartment. And uh, we used to get together in the afternoon and try changing tempos and going from three, four, you know, to four, four, and mm. then double timing and, you know, all the different subdivisions playing three across four or quarter, uh, dotted quarter note divisions, you know, you know, all things that you hear on the records that were being done then. So those things were happening. And we both also like to kind of have fun with the beat and break it down in different ways. And we both loved, like, say, Monk's music and mm. some of the more, you know, I would say less central sort of mainstream type of approaches to the music. And we both like playing open form mm. music. And so those were all reference points. We, we didn't do a tremendous amount of talking, only when, I guess, only when it came up, you know, but it wasn't like we did a big analysis all the time of what we were doing it's uh, it was mostly just listening to each other and trying things and seeing what works and you know mm -hmm. and i've always said that so particularly when you have a band um you know mars wasn't one to speak a lot about the music he, he didn't direct you a lot although when he did say something it was very significant but it was usually a bit of obtuse you know it mm -hmm. kind of wasn't a direct thing. It just gave you something to think about. And then you'd have to go back and try and figure out exactly how that applied to the music. But I always thought that he was of the thinking that if you've chosen the right musicians for the band, then you don't have to do a lot of explaining. You know, And I think that's the key. Yeah. I think if you find yourself having to talk to people about the music too much in the band, I think you've probably got the wrong people to mm. work with. You know, you... You need to find folks that have a basic understanding of what you're trying to do with the music. And if that's there, and then bring something else as well that you maybe haven't thought of yourself. So that expands on it, you know. And I've had a few bands like that, which, you know, have really gone way beyond what I thought of for the group originally. You know, it was a definitely uh, uh, developed by a group effort and a mm. collective effort in the music, you know. And you just set the... Uh, Robin Eubanks, in an interview, he, t he told me about this. I didn't hear the interview, but he said, somebody asked him about how I how I run a band or whatever. He said, Dave just winds the band up and lets it go. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that, I, I think that actually is not a bad way of describing it. You, mm. know, you just kind of get things in motion and then give it the freedom it wants and see what happens. I'm a big believer in allowing things to happen rather than trying to direct them and control them and so when i write music i also try to write music that does that as well that has the potential for being interpreted by individuals in different ways i just transcribed uh, for all you are one of my favorite uh, compositions oh, by, by it's you. funny we were just playing that oh no with with sco or what with, with sco yeah oh i want to hear that yeah he was saying how much he enjoyed it playing it we i took it to the first rehearsal and yesterday he said you know i really like playing it. i think we should play this one so that's going to be probably one we'll be playing wow i have two apart from the the record i have two recordings of that song which i so love uh, one is with herbie and jack and you from montreal mm. and the other one is from the north sea jazz festival with the same 
rhythm section and, and Chris Potter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Man. Why are those in different keys? I was wondering. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I switch keys occasionally just to suit the instrumentation, how it sounds on a particular instrument. And then other tunes I don't shift because this tune doesn't sound right in a different key. Right. But some tunes seem to, at least in my ear, have some possibilities for some other keys for them. There's a couple of other tunes like that that, that I've done in different keys. Winding Way we've done in two, maybe three different keys. Yeah. yeah. They can can take on different yeah know, yeah different things Ex along the exactly. way exactly dave so i want to know you're you're flying to new york in 68 uh to replace ron carter and miles's band and the first thing is you meet up with pervy who shows you the music the songs the repertoire or a couple of the songs and yeah, the other ones i hadn't yeah really known, couldn't figure out yeah. yeah and this is you know whenever i read this story i was like i want to know what this was like you know how how does herbie show your tunes oh well i you know i got the message and you know herbie had got the call from miles and you know there's a guy coming who's going to be playing with us this week and check the music out with him so he didn't know who i was or anything of course i mean just the thing was ron hadn't been in the band for over a year or more you know I, when you say replace ron he was already out of the band he did a tour in november in uh, of 67 where i saw the band in europe uh they came to london mars had just been picking up different bass players in different I cities see. basically you know so that was anyway yeah so i was i was told to go to herbie's house so i'll knock on the door and you know he's not that much older than me but in my mind he was already this huge presence in the music of course with all the empyrean isles and all these records that i listened to you know maiden voyage and, mm. and of course the things he'd done with miles so i was i was a little bit in awe you know and i was i was still a bit shy at that point in my life so i was just i just knocked on the door and he opened it and of course herbie being herbie he was smiling oh come on in you know like mm. this and he was just beautiful you know he's such a lovely man And then he had a piano in in his apartment. I got the bass out and went over to the piano. And he said, "So you know, do you do you know some of the music?" I said, "Well, you know, I know the the standard tunes that you've all been playing. You know, so what, and Round Midnight, and all these things. You know, Stella. We were still playing all that stuff." Mm. I said, "But the, some of the songs that I'm having trouble working out the chords to are the Wayne Shorter tunes. You know, like um, Nefertiti." And, things like that so there were there were five or six songs that i needed to go over with him which he very graciously did he showed me the chords and i wrote he you know i had some music paper and wrote down the chords and things like that mm. and that was it i think we might have spent two hours maximum together it was very very nice and he was he was just very friendly and pleasant and, mm -hmm. And then I was the gig was the next evening. This was Thursday, and then we started the three-week gig that Friday with the band. So the first night, I had these small pieces of paper inside the piano, so I could look over and see what they were. And Miles, uh, after the first set, he said, or after the gig was over, he said, "Dave, leave the music at home." <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, I better learn it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that was it. And then I didn't know how long I would 
I mean, I didn't know if the, after the first night he would say, okay, that's it, you know, yeah. done. Or I'd do the three weeks and then that, that would be it, you know. Were there But, any uh, um, eye-opening moments when Herbie showed you the, the chords to the songs? Because I just had a thing where I, I saw uh, the original chart to Dolores and then played the changes that were written on the chart along with the recording and it didn't sound as free as I thought all these years, even in the solos, it didn't sound as free as I thought it no, would I be, know. you know. They, they were playing very freely on it, I mean, in terms yeah. of the interpretation, but it was still all there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Pinocchio is another one. Yeah. And uh, Nefertiti, yeah, yeah. You know, I had no idea what the chord changes were, because Ron often would play other notes than the root. Yeah. And Herbie's voicings could be interpreted several ways. So mm -hmm. I just didn't even bother trying to figure it out. I, you know, I was very grateful that I had a chance to spend that little time with Herbie to, to, to clarify some of that stuff. You know. That's actually something that I wrote down, like harmonic lessons. Um, because you, you played with so many of the greatest piano players, and I'm sure you learned different things from all of them, you know. But if you have been playing those, those also those standard tunes with Herbie, then were there some moments where you're like... Asking him for, for explaining, like... No. No. I'm, I just work on listening. Yeah. You know, I listen to what he's playing, and then I try to find something that works with it. Yeah. And, you know, I, would, I do things like trying to find a, a line that wasn't necessarily the roots, but just something that, you know, worked with. And sometimes, you know, he'll start an idea, and it'll actually stray from what the conventional harmony would be. He'd start to sub sub do some and then sort of work his way back in. Mm. And so that's kind of, that was, a, especially this last, the period in the 90s when I was doing a lot of trio work with him, uh, that was something that was a big inspiration to me, being able to sort of find ways to go on that harmonic journey with him in different ways, you know. And, and then it would start, he'd start to hear me doing something and then build on that, you know. Yeah. So there was like a kind of, you know, bouncing stuff off, and we'd end up somewhere really different, and then come back. You know, it was it was it was really, it really opened up the idea that anything's possible. Yeah. It's it's just a matter of how you lay it out and how you make the connections. You know, that's exactly the same word that Lionel used when he talked about the harmonic layers that mm. Herbie uses, like building, mm. building mm. On, on on top of each other. Yeah. Um, And I can really hear it just waiting for you now. I, I listened to Half Nelson from, uh, I think, 96, Herbie, uh, with you and I think Craig Handy and uh, Gene Jackson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's some harmonic stuff going on there. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah. We, 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 sometimes we just crack up, you know. Yeah. Like, like this, it would be so much fun. It was almost like a cat and mouse thing, you know, mm. like chasing each other around the harmonies and stuff. You know? mm -hmm. But, you know, trying to do something creative with it as well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Because Herbie, he sort of reinvents the harmony as he goes along, you know, and it just made me think about variations, harmonic variations on a tune. So how many different ways can you still play the tune but then introduce other possible ways of getting from this point to this point? I think a great example also for this is your how you played 
um, with with that band with Herbie and Wayne and Brian Blade in 2004. Mm, that was fun. That's one of my most favorite bands, you know. I mean, yeah, uh, it's oh. so so great. And I, I have all. I mean, I think I have most of the tour <laughs> in in bootlegs, really? and I, I transcribed Fantastic. the songs, you know, and and so great to see. There's, just listen to this this moment and uh, on memory of enchantment in uh, Paris. You guys played. There's a yeah. moment um, you just talked about listening. Um, there's a moment where there's Herbie's throwing calls at you in a, in a rubato setting, and I hear you playing over those chords as as if they were written somewhere on a pa piece of paper. But I just mm. know that is that it's improvised. I can hear yeah, I can yeah. hear you listening. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying. Trying to figure out. Yeah. Well, you, you know the the the. I mean, the greatest pairing of that is Wayne and Herbie. I mean, when you hear them play duets together, it's extraordinary the um, the communication that goes on. It really mm. is. But how did you work on that? I mean, how did you work on recognizing harmonies and 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 reacting to it? I don't. I just, you know, develop your ear. That's all. And I don't can't say that I can always tell you what the harmony is, but I can find some notes that work with it. You know, mm. you know you're only a, a half step away at any point. Yeah. From I don't want to call it the right note from a note that is in the harmony. There's a moment in there where you're a half step away, you know. But I, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, uh, but you wait. Until it is right, you know, you know, until ah, that okay. note is right, and that, oh, that was yeah. a that was a big lesson for me because it's always right. you get always told like, yeah, wait, you know, it's a half step away or whatever, but sometimes also it takes courage just to stay with that one one note that might sound yeah. wrong, and yeah. actually throughout the process of staying with it, you realize that it has actually there's a there's a quality to that feeling exactly, and also. Exactly. And also the other players then can react and you don't have to do all the work also, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a big moment for me. And sometimes these big moments come from really, really small moments, you know. It's like, mm. that's a second. That's a you second. You sound like you've been doing a lot of listening. That's great. That's, I mean, I think that's as important as playing, you know. Yeah. Really But, developing your ability to hear and listen because it's all about hearing in the end. Yeah. you know playing what you hear and so as you develop your hearing and i talk to young players a lot about that the element of listening you know mm. and sometimes that you know you're so involved in actually doing and playing you know you forget wow yeah listen okay mm. yeah and how you listen too you know because sometimes you miss things you know you only see what you recognize right Yeah. If you look at if you look at something, if you don't recognize something in that thing you're looking at, you don't see it. It doesn't exist. It's true. So, so getting your listening developed so that you can absorb as much of the information that is there is another aspect of learning. Learning how to listen. That actually means like the more you know, the more you can recognize, and then the more you can hear. Yeah, it, this is true. But you know, on the other hand, the more you know. I found, like, for instance, when I was playing with Anthony Braxton, my sense of traditional harmony sometimes got in the way because I was always trying to think vertically. Mm. 
So that was a big lesson for me to get out of just always trying to think as a, a vertical relationship and think more of a linear relationship in the music. Mm. But it's it's hard to to let go of your of your instincts sometimes. Or it's, also, it's, I know you've invested a lot of time in learning mm -hmm. that vertical stuff, you know, and then you know it is hard to let go. You know? Yeah, my favorite album of mine is, is Fidi Kilimanjaro. And I, mm -hmm. I just love that record. And, and I'm really, really curious about how it was for you in the studio. Because um, there's, to me, and I think it's mentioned also in, in quite a few books, that there's a great influence by Gil Evans also on the music, some of the compositions. And I, I was wondering if he was actually present in the studio. Yeah, he was. He, yeah. he was. Because Frelon Brun, I have the, the original sheet music for it. And it looks like his handwriting for sure. It is. It is his handwriting. Is it kind of his piece, maybe? I don't know. I don't. Okay. I never. I. I. I, th I think it was a collaboration of some kind, but mm. I don't know. All I know is that Gil arrived at the studio around the same time as we did. Mm. You know, Miles had written. I thought all the songs were Miles's songs, but mm. I, who's credited with Phelan Brown? I think it's. I think it's Miles. I, yeah. I, it, it's mentioned Miles, but. Uh, the other song which you don't play on the Petit Machin, the, uh, yeah. which is actually called Eleven, I think, is also kind of a Gilevan song that's sometimes credited to him on other records and then sometimes oh, okay. to it. Tony is super active on, the, on that. It's amazing what he's do, doing on that track, the Frelon Brown. Um, and you're also, you're, you're interacting, you're in there. I always thought that Chick, he plays amazing. But for how he actually played in during that time, sixty-eight, sixty-nine, he sounds a little bit tame because he's, he's, you know, he's very much focused on the on the choral thing that he's. Um, and it, to me, it sounded like a, a kind of a direction he got from Miles. Maybe uh, did you did you notice any of that in that in that? Recording? I don't know what direction he got from Miles. Mm. I just know that the electric piano was not an instrument he was familiar with at the time. Mm. or comfortable with and, yeah. and it was something he can I say complain it's something that he grumbled about quite a bit mm -hmm. having to play it you know because we go when we were doing the concert tours you know we'd have these lovely Steinways and yeah Busendorfers you know and Miles wanted him to play the electric piano because he didn't he wasn't hearing the acoustic piano so much in the music anymore he felt like it was um, it didn't suit the direction he heard the music going in And also, I think that the nature of the electric piano demands you to work with it slightly differently from the other. You know, you, you can't play as pianistically on it, in a Absolutely. sense. I remember Miles once saying, you know, about piano players, ah, oh, they're playing concertos, you know, and stuff. I can't remember who he said it about, but um, when they get into this sort of all the way up and down, up and down, up and down, you mm. know, and it's like, hey, listen, so, you know, Art Tatum did pretty good with it, I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm just talking about now the, the period that this was happening in and what Miles was hearing for it. So I don't know what direction he gave him, but it might have been just what Chick was hearing at the time, maybe, mm -hmm. for for the music, something more simple. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it was the world. It's a, it was a little bit of a quirky instrument. Yeah. There's some moments, though, from that tour in 69 where he sometimes then switched to the, to the acoustic piano just thought about the moment where you guys played Nefertiti and it's on a it's so amazing to hear that him playing on the on the acoustic piano then mm -hmm. oh, yeah. 
Were there sometimes moments where Miles called a tune that you didn't expect? Like The one that I remember immediately is we'd been playing at least a year or so, and there's a recording of this, the Antibes Festival. And in the middle of the set, Miles, because he never told us what set we were playing. He would just start everything from the trumpet. You know, there'd be little trumpet cues, a phrase or something that would indicate the next song. And he, at some point in the set, he said, pop, 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 yeah. And Jack, I remember Jack and I looking at each other because we had not played this with him before. And not only that, it was at that tempo. Yeah. You know, and we were like, okay, you know, and we were like, <laughs> we were so happy to play that. Yeah. Because you know, it was just such a unexpected thing. And I don't know why he chose to play it on that night. We never played it again. But it was just that day, and the, and it was recorded. So there's, an, there's a version of it. I just the, listened to it today and played along with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that so recording. That, yeah. So that was that was unexpected. Yeah. Okay. You know, I studied with uh, John Taylor. He was my teacher in Cologne. Yeah, what a great pianist. Yeah. A great great teacher too. Yeah, I I would I would just like to know a couple of uh, memories of you guys coming up in London. I guess I met John when I was, uh, I moved to London when I was 17. So I was about 18 when I met John. And he still hadn't decided to make music his full-time thing. He was he had a job, a day job. Um, and I can't remember where we met each other, but I was looking for somewhere else to live. And somehow he and I and three other guys ended up in this really nice big house that we shared and then had an upright piano in the living room and at the time John was very much into uh, Oscar Peterson mm. and I was uh, really into Ray Brown so we found a, a common love there and we you know we were learning a lot of the arrangements and playing a lot of the songs and we were working mostly pubs and doing rehearsal bands, I, you know, and just checking out the music. And, and then something, we, uh, well, during that time, we, we were doing, a, I think it was a Tuesday night gig at the Lilliput pub in the East End of London with a West Indian singer called Bobby Breen. Mm. And one night a young lady came in to sing, to sit in. And she started singing Lady as a Tramp, right? So we played that. And then at the end of the first chorus, she started improvising, but using the words still, but improvising around that. This is Norma? It was Norma. Yeah. And it's the first time we had met her. We both met Norma at the same time. Beautiful. And then we played in rehearsal bands. There were some very good rehearsal bands that were playing very contemporary big band music. That, which I was interested to play, you know. So that was sort of our thing. And we, we stayed good friends and played some gigs together in London. Hmm. I'd, I'd go over to his house. I remember, oh, God, I remember when Love Supreme came out. I think that was the record. And I remember calling him up and I said, John, you got to check this out. Like, can I come over? And, and uh, I had 
worked out. I, you know, I can't play piano at all, but I can voice things and work things out. I wouldn't perform on it, but I worked out some of these fourth voicings from the thing and how he was moving. And so I went over to John and I said, check this out. And I showed it the, the, yeah. these fourth voicings. And there was a couple of, there was maybe a Herbie record I was listening to as well. So we were both discovering this music at the same time. Beautiful. Kind of nice. Yeah, it was really nice. And then, of course, uh, the, our next period of playing together was with Kenny, mm. you know, on, on quite a few records. And uh, yeah, John was a special, uh, special musician. He found something very personal in how to approach the piano. And, you know, he kind of took all those, all that information that he learned from all the things that he listened to and then ex expanded on it or extrapolated into, you know, his own, his own language of uh, extension of that, you know. That's exactly what was our big theme when, when I had lessons with him, you know, how to incorporate yeah. what you what you love without yeah. being a copy of it and then yeah. making your own decisions and your own, your, you know, following your own dreams with it. And then he was a very brave performer. Mm. I, you know, that was the thing that always struck me. He seen, I'm sure there must have been moments where he had, you know, as we all do, you know, insecure feelings. But I mean, he just, he just always seemed to have courage yeah. to go for it. Yeah, one of the last things he said to me on a festival where we both played was like, yeah, Pablo, I feel great. Uh, although I'm getting older, uh, and he said, although I get, I'm getting older, I think I, I'm getting more brave. And I, I don't think about messing up anymore. I don't care yeah. anymore. I don't, don't I care about... Don't have to prove anything. Yeah. And I just, that was a, you know, I didn't study with him then. By, by then I didn't study anymore with him. But that was yeah. another big lesson, you know. Yeah, but uh, you were very, that was a great thing for you to be able to do that. Oh, yeah. Being the presence of a musician like that. Mm. That must have been just before he died. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I really miss him. Yeah, yeah well, you know, but he's kind of in our hearts. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We all, we all come and we all go. So, yeah. You know, you have to, you have to live with that and accept it. Yeah. Maybe a good place to stop, huh? That's good. <laughs> Great. And thank you enough for doing this. It really means a You're lot welcome. to me. Okay. Well, thank you. It was thank a nice you. talking to you. Thank you all so right. much. All See the best you, to you. Bye bye. And you too. Bye bye. Bye.